like to take a moment and thank our sponsor. If you have a laser device for training and you want to take it to the next level, or if you're looking to get into using a laser device for training, check out the products at laserapp.com. L-A-S-R-A-P-P.com. You can use code CSP2021 for 15% off the items you've selected. And thanks for checking them out. Welcome to this week's episode of the Casual Shooters Podcast, your premier podcast for the casual shooter. So our guest this week is a little bit more unique than most. Um, He's been deployed to combat, been a guest on Fox News. He's an app creator and an author, uh, a lawyer, just all kinds of things. So with that, let's welcome Ryan Kleckner to the show. How are you doing, Ryan? I'm doing great. Glad to be on here. Awesome. Thanks for being on. Mm-hmm. If you would, I know I gave you a little brief intro. If you would, go ahead and introduce yourself real quick. Oh, uh, that's... I'm getting to the point in life where that's hard because I, I'm so unfocused. That's probably a lesson <laughs> for me. I need to get more focused that it's hard to explain. So when you get that dreaded question at a kid's birthday party from another parent, oh, what do you do? It just depends on the situation what I answer. If I don't really want the conversation to go any further, I say, oh, I'm an attorney. And they just nod and the conversation's over, right? Okay. Or if you really want to talk to people, it's like, oh, I kind of get paid to shoot and hunt for a living. What does that mean? And then I get to explain from there. So I do an awful lot related to firearms and the firearms industry. I either, as an attorney, I represent uh, the bigger manufacturers or distributors against ATF issues or State Department issues or import-export issues, things like that. I ve- not very much. I do it just a little bit, just to kind of jump in and help out whenever there's a big problem. I like to write. I I like to teach, and I teach often through either writing or through videos. It's either on gununiversity.com. It's my website that I own with a partner of mine. We try to put out good gun information that educates and where we tell the truth. And I don't want to... Not, I don't want to disparage any other blog or magazine or article, but many places I, as a reader, am suspicious about their opinions on guns or products when I'm reading it, because I'm, I'm sure if anyone listening takes an honest assessment, there's at least once you've read an article and thought, oh, well, he's getting a free gun, or, oh, this is mm-hmm. the best thing ever. Well, wasn't the last week a gun the best thing ever? Yeah, so that, that happens, and I don't know if people know who to trust. And with all these new shooters in the industry, we thought it might be fun, my partner and I, because we have so many other projects going, um, to make a website that takes no advertisers. So there's no advertising. Not that there's anything wrong with advertisers, but the website refuses to have an ad on it. We won't take free guns. If a manufacturer sends us a gun, we insist it gets sent back or we give it away. Um, we just tell the truth, and... We have writers for the website, and they're a great group of people, and I insist as the editor that they have a C average on their guns when they give guns letter grades. Not every gun can be great. And so that's kind of fun, so I like to teach and write through there. I also write books, do videos for things like Warrior Poet Society or videos for on YouTube for teaching that way. And I run online courses to help people get their FFLs through Rocket FFL and I keep up on social media by hunting trips and just, just an awful lot. And I'm spoiled and I love it. <laughs> All right. I like it. Yeah. There's a lot there. Uh, there's a lot of meat there. Um, so there's 
definitely a lot we're going to be talking about. Well, then, yeah, Mayday Safety. You mentioned that before. I forgot about that one. See, I forget mm-hmm. about what I'm doing. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Let's talk about, let's talk about guns. What do, you, what do you guys want to do? <laughs> all right. About? Let's do that. All right. So what we're going to do is we're going to start off uh, like we do all our other ones to get to know our guest. So we're going to ask you five questions real quick. Okay. Um, four standard ones. And then I have, uh, I usually create our fifth question as something unique to the individual. Okay. So normally Leo, who's our other co-host, would ask the movie question, but what is your favorite movie? Boondock Saints. Oh, good answer. I like it. Okay. I, I see as a dad, I see a lot of movies more than once. <laughs> That's how kids like <laughs> right. to watch movies. But I still haven't seen, despite all the Disney Pixar movies, I still haven't seen any movie more than I've seen the Boondock Saints. Oh, wow. Now, did you... So you've seen, what is there, two episodes or three? I think there's two, correct? There's two movies. The second one doesn't count. I I wish they didn't make it. The first one was great. Um, And what it was, it was in the military. Whenever we would occasionally get on a bus that got chartered somewhere for us to drive somewhere, normally we flew places. But if we ever got on a bus or you're ever sitting on an airplane hangar waiting on something or you're in the barracks and someone had a TV, invariably that was the movie that was on. So I've seen it more than 20 times just by nature of it being what was on the TV. Uh, I got out before Boondon Sanks was ever a movie, so. (laughs) All righty then. Well, when did it come out? came out in like late 90s, I think. Yeah, I spent nine and a half years in, and I was out in December of 94. Okay, there you go. Yeah, yeah, just before that. Yeah, yeah. Huggy, you want to ask the next one, or you want me to go ahead? Uh, I can ask him real quick. Again, I apologize for the background noise when I stop, but I'm going to try to take care of that. But I personally would like to know uh, what is your favorite book that you enjoy reading the most? 1984. Oh, I, I read that book once a year. Do you really? Yep, and I listen to it on tape probably also once a year on audiobook, just because it's a fun road trip book to listen to. I haven't introduced my kids to it yet, but I have introduced my daughter to Animal Farm, and she's so far my hunting buddy. And so when she goes on hunting trips with me, yeah, she's 11 now. I, I tried to sneak that in there. I said, hey, you want to try listening to this book? And she's requested it a couple times since, and I, I try not to propagandize her, but I will stop and be like, huh, that's interesting. Communism doesn't seem to work out. That's weird. And so she's getting all the hints from there, but no, the, on the audible, the author, the, uh, the narrator that they have reading 1984 is incredible. I, I just, I think it's, uh, and every time I listen to it, I get more out of it. So there you go. Wow. I haven't read that since I was in high school in the eighties. needs to so, be done, especially the audio. Just do the audible sure. one. It's so easy to hop in the car and listen to it 10 minutes at a time. Yeah, for sure. I like I'm that way to too. The audiobook is kind of nice too, even though I like reading better normally because it allows me to daydream a little bit. And I get to daydream about the book and politics and life and stuff. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Uh, my next question for you is uh, Who is your favorite superhero and it cannot be underdog? <laughs> oh my gosh, I don't know if I have one. I even I even have to think about who superheroes are. Is Batman a superhero, or is he just he a is. dude? 
Because apparently he is. Because he have superpowers though. Right. I don't know. I, caught me off guard on that one. I, I I couldn't list more than Batman and Superman right now. And I, between the two, I'd pick Batman. All right, but, there we go. Batman, sorry. it is. Batman, it is. But I have Ryan Kleckner as mine. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now, gun-wise, what is your favorite gun and caliber? Now, just because your favorite gun might be the SIG P320 doesn't mean your favorite caliber is 9mm. Can anyone answer that question that truly is in the guns? Uh, some people have multiple answers. Yeah. I, <laughs> my buddy, I told you about with gun university, his name's Dave. Uh, he loves to laugh at the fact that I could never answer questions like that. Um, or if I do try to answer it for somebody, I always start with, it depends. It okay. Depends well, let, I, best handgun? Let me pose it to you this I way. I let me pose all. it to you this way. Mm-hmm. I know you're a big hunter. Mm-hmm. If you had to choose one rifle and one caliber, for hunting for the rest of your life, what would you choose? I don't know the rifle, probably a custom rifle, because I'm a little bit of a bougie snob like that when it comes to rifles. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, you are spoiled. It's good. Th- 300 PRC for sure would be the cartridge. Oh, okay. Assuming in this pretend world that ammo availability is not going to be a problem. Of course. You know, the more so reasonable, the safe answer would probably be like a 300. Oh, for sure. I love 6.5, and I've hunted a lot with it lately. The past few elk I've had with 6.5 Creedmoor. It's wonderful. But if the rest of my life, I'd rather overdo it than underdo it. Okay. And, okay, what about pistol? Same question pistol-wise. You have one pistol, one caliber for that pistol. What are you doing? Probably Glock 19 and 9 mil. I mean, it's not my favorite, but you, I appreciate you changing the question a little bit because that, that does change the answer. If I had one for the rest of my life, I don't want fancy, sexy, cool pistol. I want one that's just going to go bang forever. That's okay. Makes perfect sense. Yeah. Okay. All right. Now the fifth question, the one that I've just for you is, um, I actually even had to make sure I I was going to pronounce it correct. You went to Quinnipiac university, correct? Yep. That's right. (laughs) Okay. Law school. I went to to Arizona state for undergrad. Uh Okay. Mm -hmm. Now they do a lot of political polling. They do. And I always see that on different places. Can you give us any insight as to how they do their political polling? No. Nope. <laughs> okay. Sorry. No, I went to the law school. So it's, it's you know, much like, you know, you, you, most universities, right? The, the schools are you're so distinct and separate. I, I don't even know even where the undergrad classes really are, I don't think. The law school's its own building. Oh, its wow. Own area. I mean, I guess I do know where they are because I know where campus is, but I wouldn't be able to point to the difference between the library Versus the classrooms, versus the dorms and the buildings. I went to the hockey games <laughs> okay. all the time. I loved that. And I went to the law school and back. So I'm sorry. I don't know. That's okay. I figured I'd throw it out there. It was worth a try. Matter of fact, now the law school moved. It's like miles away from the main campus even. So law students would even never go to the main campus. Wow. Any idea why they did that? or Law school just keeps growing. So they just needed more space. Wow. Okay. And you talk about um, having your introducing your daughter to Animal Farm mm-hmm. for what you went to school for and what you do now. It seems like was when you went to law school. Was there any? Did they professors add any of a political twist to any of it up there? Um, 
Yes, not as bad as you hear in extreme examples in social media stuff that we see, which is very clearly happening. I'm not saying that those examples are exaggerated. I'm just saying it wasn't that overt. But at the same time, I knew that the professors were mostly liberal, um, but not all. So undergraduate professors, I think, are very different than law school, graduate school professors. You know, these law school professors typically have had a career in their field. Some of them only teach one or two classes and are okay. act, actual practicing attorneys, you know, things like this. So they understand how the real world works. They're not stuck in academia. Right. Um, and they're also talking to people, not that are smarter, but have already at least made it through undergrad. Right. And by the time I went there, I'd already been in the military and out and everything by the time I went to law school. Uh, no, there's a couple of professors that just flat out told me they had a problem with me or with guns or things like that. I understand wow. that. Wow. And there's other professors that I couldn't get to stop talking to me because they liked the guns. <laughs> <laughs> and they'd never have a student that even understands guns, let alone has a little bit of a, you know expertise in certain firearms. So after class, my, my peers, my friends would laugh or kind of roll their eyes because the class would end and he'd run over and go, hey, my buddy got this gun, this revolver, and then they talked to me about it. And he was a really nice guy. I liked the professor. I really did. It's just I got to see both ends of it. I got to see you know, two people out of a thousand actually liked the same topic. And when I went there, one of the reasons I went there was because of the program they had they offered me a deal I couldn't refuse. Um, and when I, they flew me out there for a weekend to meet with professors and to see if I was going to be part of this program for the school, to, you know, as they're doing admissions. And one of the professors, um, she was a former prosecutor. She just looked right at me across the table and flat out said, I, I don't like your experience with guns. How do I know you're not going to be dangerous and we bring you to the school and just o overtly off the charts insulting. It was, it was interesting. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's pretty shocking, actually. Yeah, she said, you're, you're equipped to be a mass murderer. How do I know you're not going to be? Well, she's not wrong in a way, but, mm -hmm. I mean, if you just go back to 1966 and Charles Whitman, but yeah, mm -hmm. but she's wrong in the way she did it. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I'm, I told her what I thought she was equipped for and if I needed to worry <laughs> about her in the meeting with other professors, and the other professors laughed. And, um, I thought for sure they wouldn't bring me there for the program because of that. And they did. Right. And she ended up being my criminal law professor and we got along just fine. Oh, wow. You know, okay. You know, I'm wondering if she was testing you just to kind of see what you would say. And it was all just part of the process. It's just, she wanted to see where your mind would go. If you were going to really like, I would say launch at her and you, uh, like step back and, and probably smooth her and she was like oh well okay he's good <laughs> i think you're right i thought about that right as i walked out of the room too i went oh you know what i think because it was so weird how she did it she said well tell me about this i said what would you like to know she said well tell me about it i said well i used to do this in the military and i've been a sniper instructor for this many years since then and this is what i do now well like that's, that's concerning and i innocently said why 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 would that be concerning she said well because you know, you know, firearms and sniper and all that stuff can be kind of scary. I said, well, well ma'am, weren't you a prosecutor? Uh, most of my students as a sniper instructor are law enforcement. The other ones are military. I, I would imagine you'd want me helping the good guys. Yeah, I, I don't I don't understand. And she kept going and kept going and kept going. When she finally said the equipment mass murderer, that's when I gave her the, the sly out of the corner of my mouth, tongue-in-cheek uh, insult back to her. And yeah, so maybe you're right. Maybe, maybe she was testing me to get a rise out of me. Cause I actually ended up liking her. She was a really neat lady and she was super assertive and confident. So it wouldn't surprise me. Hmm. 
Interesting. Now, when did you first shoot a gun? Oh, too young to remember. I, I've been okay, around so that my whole life. Yeah, oh, for sure. For sure. Okay. My whole family has always been hunting, always been shooting. Um, even younger than I can truly remember how old I was, was in the backyard with my little BB gun, shooting little Dixie paper cups in the backyard, you know, to practice. So I've just grown up around firearms. Yeah, I went from BB gun to pellet gun to real gun. Mm-hmm. So I know that feeling. <clears throat> so what? How old do you think you were then when you did went on your first hunting trip? My first hunting trip, I was twelve. Well, first hunting trip, I gone on hunting trips when my dad used to carry me on his shoulders. He used to archery elk hunt with okay. me as a toddler on his shoulders. So I don't remember all those. But the first time I was hunting, I I first hunted big game, a big game animal at twelve. I got an antelope, and then wow. next was an elk. And I've never stopped that. And younger, I'd shoot small game or I'd shoot bird. You'll single action break open 410, shooting quail, you're a dove or things like that. Wow, 410. I haven't heard that in a while. I don't think we've ever had a guest mention a 410. So. I mean, I remember being so young that I shot a jackrabbit with a 410 and I just bawled my eyes out because mm. I saw that I killed it. And it was just the first time realization of like, oh my goodness. So for some reason, seeing a bird getting shot by a BB gun, a little sparrow by a BB gun didn't seem as sad to me as the jackrabbit. But I, I remember being really young and, and having a hard time with that. Yeah. Well, rabbits are pets, so yeah. for some people. Yeah. So you, you've been shooting, you'd been hunting. Um, at some point, I guess in high school, you decided you weren't going to go to college initially. You were going to go into the Army. No, I went to I went to college. And wasted my time. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm a strong believer that most 18 to 22-year-old males are kind of a waste of space. Because they don't have a skill yet. They don't right. have money yet. They don't know what they're going to do with their life yet. The Our brains haven't fully developed yet. Yeah, so it's, it's <laughs> 18 to 22-year-old males, watch out. After that, <laughs> trust them. Before that, trust them. During that time. And so it was just one of those things. I was wasting my time. I wasn't going to classes. I kind of was, I kind of wasn't, and about a year and change went by, and never thought I would join the military, you know, just always tell recruiters to get lost, and then just out of nowhere on a whim decided, I need to shake things up, and really, on a whim, signed up and went. A week and a half later, I woke up in basic training, I mean, it was that, it was that quick. Wow, that is very quick. Yeah, I had to sign a waiver that said, I understand I'm not waiting the mandatory, like, 20-day wait period or something like that. Wow, I was Went in delayed home. entry for 11 months. <laughs> yeah, I was like, telling recruiters to get lost, listened to a recruiter, went down to MEPS, took the ASVAP, went down to MEPS, and they showed me the book. They're like, hey, pick a job, whatever you want to do, you can do. <laughs> and I said, and here's the signing bonus, and here's this. And I said, I knew nothing about Rangers except for friends that talked about them before. And I said, well, can I, what's the chance of getting into a Ranger Battalion? Like, not just going to Ranger School, but actually you know, working as a Ranger in a Ranger Battalion. They said, well, you can get a contract for that, but you got to give up your bonus and you got to give up this and you got to, and if you fail out of the pipeline at any point, we get to pick your job and where you're stationed. So you really want to do that? I said, sign me up. So a week and a half later, I was in basic training, regretting my decision for at least a few weeks. (laughs) That might be the most honest recruiter in the history of the world. Yeah, they they gave it to me. I I passed up a a good bonus. I passed up all that just to get the chance to go. Yeah. Okay. I, I, wow. I'm surprised he told you that you were not going to get a bonus 
if you failed out, they were going to choose where you were going and what you were doing. So good for well, him. That's on, that's on purpose. I think that's part of the pipeline to get into Ranger Battalion is they only want people that are there. I mean, RIP is what they used to call the indoctrination program to get in. Right. Hardest thing I've ever done in my life. By far. Three weeks. And the speech they give you at the beginning. They look around. There's 126 of you. And we're taking 12. We're not taking the people that make it. We're not taking the people that can do this test. We're taking 12. So we're going to make it worse and worse and worse until there's 12 of you left. And I looked around. And I was clearly not in the top half of people I would have even picked that would have made it. I I wasn't the strongest or the smartest or... You know, there, there's half the guys look like they belong on the recruiting poster for special operations, right? And I'm just this dude standing there looking around going, what did I get myself into? <laughs> Somehow, I was still there when the three weeks was over. I didn't give up and quit. And I think that's the whole point is the psychology of having to repeatedly volunteer and repeatedly give up nice things is that makes it to be the only people they want to come in. Does that make sense? Yeah. They, yeah. they don't want the guy that can is the strongest or is the smartest. They want the person that's not going to give up or that wants it for the right reasons. Yeah. It makes perfect sense. All right. So you went, you made it, uh, through ranger school, obviously. Right. Which you actually don't do until about a year of being in the ranger battalion. Cause ranger school is a leadership school only. I mean, you don't fire a single live round in ranger school. You don't learn to fight. You don't learn really. Right. Anything. It's military leadership. So we go, you make it to a ranger battalion and you're working as a ranger. You go to ranger school and come back and you take a leadership position because it's such a good, I think it's a great leadership training school, but I, I think so many people aren't clear on what it is. It gets a lot of misunderstanding in the world. Uh, for sure. Um, I've known people who went, I didn't, I, so I know what the school is like. But I don't think I've ever heard it called a leadership school. So that's a, that's a first. I think it's even the description of it. Yeah. I might look that up, okay. but I think it's, it's a, I think it's the best leadership school there is and it's military leadership. That's why they make every infantry officer go. Every infantry officer has to go to ranger school. And again, you don't fire one live round of ammunition. You're not learning how to shoot. You're not marksmanship. You're right. not fighting. You're not doing anything. It's all about how do you motivate 30 of your peers to listen to you and for you to accomplish the mission for that day when they don't have to listen to you. So they, they all come into the patrol base, they'll switch out ranger instructors, and you're all skinny and tired and miserable and no sleep and been walking forever, and they'll, new ranger instructors will show up and they'll call, all right, Kleckner, you're the platoon leader for the day. Here's your mission. Go plan it. And you got to come back in a couple hours with your whole mission brief, and you have to brief your squad leaders, and they have to brief their team, and none of them are getting graded. You're the only one getting graded. So when one of them gets lost or when one of them decides they want to eat, the food in their backpack because they're hungry and they're not pulling security or they fall asleep or you don't find the objective and you don't make it to the patrol base the next morning at two in the morning or you don't do whatever you're the one that would fail and then for the rest next 15 days you're not getting graded for anything you're just following along helping your buddies out so that's why it's such a great military leadership school it's trying to get people to motivated to do things they wouldn't do otherwise yeah for sure mm -hmm. <clears throat> <clears throat> so you okay so a year in you go to ranger school yeah, now at yeah. what okay so at what point in there um maybe i should back up so how i know you were a sniper in as a ranger how does that happen well so i first when you first show up 
you think you're really tough and awesome and cool because you just made it and you got a cool beret. At the time, we were the only ones that had black berets in the army. So you're like, I'm, I'm, I'm bad. I'm so cool. I'm untouchable. And then you show up to the duty station to First Ranger Battalion and you realize that you're nobody. You're nothing yet. You know, you get hazed and messed with for months. I mean, you get hazed and messed with for years, but especially those first few months. Because you don't know what you're doing. You, you showed right. up, you're in a range of battalion, but you don't know how to breach a door. You don't know how to clear rooms. You don't know how to do that. So your first year, you are just soaking in as much information as you can. So it's about a year of just everyday training and learning and following and that kind of stuff. So by the end of the year, you get pretty good at clearing rooms because you spent a year doing it in the military. You know how long a year in the military is longer than a year out of the military, right? Because you can cram Absolutely. so much day and so much training and so much everything. Yes. So you're getting... All that training, you're getting all that, and you get up to speed, and now you kind of are getting a job a little bit. That's why they'll send you to ranger school then, because it gives you a three-month break from everyone else. <laughs> and then you come back. Well, because it's hard to just say, all right, you, you're now in charge of your peers, because it's too weird that day. So when you go away for three months, a lot happens in three months, you come back. Then you can take your actual position, because you've learned for a year and you've done all that stuff. And my position was a breacher, so I was on a, a regular um, ranger fire team. So very often second in the stack, but would often breach the doors. So learned a lot of explosive charges, carried a shotgun under my left armpit, you know, just that's, that was my job. And then I realized quickly that I had to fight every single morning when I woke up to be mediocre because the guys I was in with were just, just such incredible people. They're incredible men that it was, it was really hard just to keep up. I'm not, I mean, just from running just from PT in the morning, just trying to keep up with these guys running. It was ridiculous. You know, every, every cadence in the army is something about being an airborne ranger. The only people that don't sing cadence are rangers. We never sang cadence once. You actually yeah, ran for fitness. Either. Yeah. So you just, yeah. And these guys, I had, I knew a guy in my platoon that could do the army 10 miler in under an hour. So 10 sub six minute miles in a row. That's a machine. I, at the time, I, I'm 6'2 and 220. I was the same weight when I was in. It's just a little better proportioned when I was younger. But <laughs> a 6'2, 220 pound guy does not run 10 sub six minute miles in a row. It just doesn't no. happen. You know, I'm, I'm the one that carries the ruck up the mountain, not the one that runs like a gazelle. So, anyway, just trying to keep up was hard. And I realized that there's no old Rangers in a, you know, like Ranger Battalion Rangers. They're not. The platoon sergeants were young. Everyone was young. And I knew that either your body breaks or your mind breaks, but you don't stay that long in a battalion. Uh, most of the guys go on to Delta Force. I think Delta Force is still probably 60%, 70% former Ranger Battalion guys because that's the next logical step to graduate and move up the chain. You know. And I always thought helicopters were cool, so I put together my warrant officer packet to go be a helicopter pilot to think maybe that would be a good next step. And there's only six Ranger snipers at the time, and one of the guys got out, so there was an opening in the sniper section, and the word went out to everyone and said, who wants to... Who wants to be a sniper next? And I, I put my name in the hat. And it came down to, I almost didn't get the position because other people had more seniority than me, but they asked me, Ryan, we want to keep you here. So if you tear up your warrant officer packet and promise not to leave and go to helicopter school, we'll give you the position. And that's how it happened. Walked over to the sniper section and started all over again. I was the brand new guy. I knew nothing again. Oh, and goodness. just had to soak up all the information like a sponge as much as I could and go to a bunch of amazing schools. Okay. Wow. Interesting. Now, at one point, I'm going to back up for just a second. Um, 
Because, again, I don't know the process. But at what point did you go to airborne school? Oh, airborne school you do after basic training. So I did basic training. Okay. And then advanced individual training, AIT, which is where you kind of learn your job. But in order to get to a ranger battalion, I had to sign up as infantry. So infantry AIT is just more basic training, essentially. Right. Yeah. And then you go to airborne school after that. And then once you graduate airborne school, at airborne school graduation is when the RIP instructors showed up. Seeming like they wanted to rip everyone's heads off, okay. and picked up picked up all the people to go to rip, and then you go to rip, and if you make it, you go in. If you don't, they send you to Korea, and then about a year <laughs> after that, so I did Ranger School next. And after I went right when I went to the sniper section, I got sent to Sodic that first week, uh, Special oh, wow. Operations Target Interdiction Course, which made me not so popular because there's guys that have been waiting their careers to get to Sodic. And I got to wow. go the first week because of how the training schedule worked and all this. All of a sudden, the new guy gets to go to arguably the premier sniper school in the world. I got to go do that for a couple months. And then came back and just more and more schools. Different shooting schools, medical schools. They sent me to civilian EMT school. I became an EMT while I was in just because they wanted every small unit in the, Ranger, in the Rangers to be an EMT. Um, French mountaineering schools. I just... Just amazing time. I really did have a wonderful mini career and then got that's out a, and went to law school. That's a that's a big budget for all those schools. Oh, I'll never wow. pay back how much money I, I cost. Oh, no, absolutely <laughs> not. Yeah. Now, so did the other guys. Did they go to 1st Battalion, 75th? Is that at Benning? Nope. That's in uh, Hunter Army Airfield in Savannah, Georgia. Okay. That's where I was at. 3rd Ranger Battalion is at Benning. And second Ranger oh, okay. Battalion is up in Fort Lewis, Washington. Gotcha. So the other snipers, did they go to the Army Sniper School at Benning? Oh, yeah, for sure. So most of us went to the Army Sniper School first as like a base level, understand how to be the basics of being a sniper first. And Your then intro, right. After they'd worked for a while as a sniper. And by the way, you learn, like we kind of talked about before, on the job just as much or more than you do in a school, but a school is a good baseline to start you off with. And they'd work as a sniper for a year or two. And if they, the chance came up for Sodic, because Sodic, I think, only ran at that time a couple times a year. And I call it the Noah's Ark of sniper schools, because when you show up, it's like two SEALs, two Delta, two Rangers, two uh, SF, oh. two FBI, <laughs> two CIA. Like, there's about 20 people in the class. And right. so you don't get much of a chance to go. And then, so I think everyone eventually ends up going to Sodic, though. And then there's a bunch of different smaller schools we can go to. So I went to Sodic before going to Army Sniper School. Matter of fact, the first time I pulled the trigger on an M24 was in Sodic, and I had to pretend like it wasn't <laughs> because I, I tried to convince everyone there I knew what I was doing. So I had my eyes and ears open and was taking notes like crazy from day one. And you guys have Leopolds on those M24s? We did. Well, to start in Sodic, your first two weeks, you're only allowed iron sights and a sling. Okay. And you make it through the first two weeks learning how to shoot with iron sights and sling, and you effectively have a test at the end of those two weeks. And if you fail the test, they kick you out, which is a big problem I have with military schools, by the way. So many military schools aren't schools, they're tests. You know, right. you hear your instructors of military schools or people brag about the attrition rate of their school. It's like, well, that means you're a bad instructor. <laughs> if you're so proud that you kick half your students out, that means you couldn't teach half of them. Yeah, that sounds more like yeah. a test to me than a school. But anyway, so you take a test after two weeks. A few guys would fail and they'd get kicked out. And then those of us that stayed, that's how you earned your scope and your bipod legs. And then from there on out, you're allowed to use bipod legs and a scope to shoot. 
Interesting. So I was at, uh, I spent four years as an instructor at Quantico at the Scout Sniper School there. And um, we had on on average, I would say a 60% attrition rate. Mm -hmm. We never lost anybody to marksmanship. We would. Oh, why did they lose out then? Um, it was all field skills. Mm. The, the way we did our stalking was it was a progressive point system where you get one point for getting off the vehicle at your insert point. Mm-hmm. And then you have to work your way up the highest being a 10, which is where you actually fire two blanks. You're never seen. And then you can egress a hundred yards. Um, and typically it was stalking that ended up, you know, people yeah, failing. The stocks were tough. I, I got busted on a stock by picking the wrong observer. I picked the old oh. man. That had, he had been retired for 20 years and he was still an instructor at Sodic and just this crass old man that would drink coffee and chain smoke cigarettes. <laughs> and he was he was a sniper god, and I picked him one time, and he walked the walker right into me, reached down to the grass on my head, and said, "Tell the sniper next time, don't put the grass in upside down, because apparently the thicker part was up and it was blowing different." Um, That's funny. So I used to. So we had. This sounds horrible now, but I'm still proud of it. We kind of had a motto. I'm sure you've heard it um, in the Marine Corps. Uh, it's if you're not cheating, you're not trying. You guys ever use that? And if you get caught, you're not trying hard enough. Exactly right. So. <laughs> I used to cheat. I figured out how to cheat on my stocks. We did five stocks in Sodic. And on my last couple stocks, I figured out the game. Is one, okay. I, I know about standoff. I never hide at the base of a tree, right? I'm 10, 20 feet behind the tree. Correct. You know, as I'm using it, looking around the edge. Yep. Well, it was a game. This is a game for points. If there's points involved, it's a game. And there's rules, it's a game. So I played it like a game. Is The second they would let us go, me and my partner would just book it. I mean... There are a lot of people who do that. Run and use the terrain. Like, look at the map, and there's a big hill to the side. We'd run way out of the course, way to the side. It didn't say you had to stay in the course. Run way to the side. Run within, you know, 100 yards or 20 yards. Sometimes the instructors wouldn't even be there yet, or they'd be setting up because there's so many students that just hit the ground and start belly crawling from 1,000 yards away. That's crazy. Right. And so we'd get there, and if the instructors were there, we had terrain in our way, so we could take our time and pick where we're going to go. But I would stack up behind the tree and I'd get in a position where I could just barely lean the right and see around the tree and barely lean to the left and be behind the tree. Okay. When I'd get up on them, you'd always wait for someone else to shoot first. So I'd go to sleep on my rifle and you had blanks, same thing. And the second somebody fired, I'd wake up and pull my trigger because both instructors, we'd have two instructors in the back of a vehicle. The second a shot would go off, they'd both turn and look at that shot. Right. So two seconds later, I'd shoot. So they couldn't have been looking over at me. And for those that are listening, don't know, you probably did it the same way, Dave, is we had them identify a letter or something on top of the binoculars to make sure you could actually see the, the observer. Right. Well, or I the knew. observer would do an action and they yeah. would have to identify that. Correct. So we had letters. They did little like little cards with letters on them right on top of the binos to make sure you could see where the binos were, you know, to make okay. sure they could spot you. So I would, I would shoot, and then I would just make sure I was leaned back behind the tree when I reloaded so they couldn't see any movement, <laughs> right? Okay. And then I'd stay behind the tree. I'd just stay leaned a little to the left. They'd get the walker over. There's never going to find me because I'm 10 or 20 feet behind the tree, which means the width of the tree is completely blocking me. They're getting the walker going all over. Can't get close. The walker gets within 10 yards to help them find me. Can't do it. It gets within five yards to find me. It gets within one yard to can't find me. And if they still can't see you then, then they'll have you identify and take a second shot. When I'd hear over the radio, the observers say, all right, prepare to have shooter identify. 
I knew that meant they leaned down to the box of cards of the ground to pick up a letter. So when they came off binos and leaned down to pick up a card, I'd, I'd roll back out. He'd put the letter up. I'd say, Romeo. And the, the walker would say, shooter identifies Romeo. And they'd look at the card and go, dang it, he's right. And when they leaned down to put the card back, I would lean back behind the tree. And then they'd say, have him fire a second shot. I'd shoot my second shot into the back of the tree because it's a blank. Oh, Bang. And you, you'd hear the instructors. Oh, my God. I couldn't even see the, the flash. I can't even see him at all. That's amazing. Yeah, so, so sorry to the instructors now if you're listening to this. but. <laughs> well, yeah, in the in the Marines, we did a little different where you had left and right lateral limits and you had to stay within them at all times. So, okay. But that's well, that first funny. part wouldn't have worked, but the, the, the peekaboo behind the tree, I thought that was smart, but yeah, know. yeah. You're definitely playing the game. That's funny. So how long then, um, were you in the Rangers as a sniper? Two years. That's it. Oh, wow. Okay. And then went to Afghanistan twice and said, guys, it's time to leave the party while I'm still having fun. I'm not. Yeah. While you, know, you can still have fun. Yeah. Well, I was already getting hurt. I already had, I was already having bad hips. I was already limping around at 23. This is ridiculous. Like you guys are great. I had a wonderful time. Um, but the way I looked at the military was if I was going to reenlist and be in what, eight and a half, nine years, depending on how you do the math. Mm-hmm. I'm almost halfway to retirement. So I might as well stay for the full career. And if I was going to stay a full career, I knew my body or my brain wouldn't last in a range battalion my whole career. So I was going to have to move on anyway. And the only bonus opportunity I had was for effectively college, the GI Bill. I thought, you know what? You guys go do stupid stuff in the desert. I've gone twice. I've got all my limbs. I'm going to go uh, back to school and... If I'm done with school and I want to come back, I'll be able to come back as an officer. And that sounds like a better job. Yeah, much better. And especially for retirement too. And that's when I started teaching at a uh, government contracted sniper school. And that's actually where I learned way more about shooting than I did in the military. I mean, I got a lot of great experiences in the military, but I didn't really put it all together until I got out. And I'm, I'm sure you recognize these moments too, is even as instructors, sometimes you're just telling, teaching what you've been told. You don't mm-hmm. know that's really what's happening. And I didn't really understand how to teach until I started class in, class out, dealing with some civilians, some police, some military, some whatever, and figuring out better ways to explain things. And all day, like you did, Dave, watch sniper students, right? I got to watch people yeah. hitting targets all day and calling wind all day. And that's really where I learned, I think, how to teach and and a lot of my theories I have on shooting. Yeah, we were, we were fortunate in that... Um... FBI HRT was a half a mile to a mile away from us. So we did stuff with them. Um, and then every year for about three years in a row, we ran a couple of DOJ law enforcement classes. So, you know, you, you're one way with military guys, but then you're completely different with these other guys uh, and how you interact with them, how you teach them and all of that. So it was, it was very interesting, and you definitely learn the more variety of people you have to teach. You learn, and this is the, like, I've been a paramedic now for 22 years. Okay. I do a lot of teaching paramedic students, 
I run a lot of internships with people who are paramedics, but they've never worked on the street before. Mm -hmm. And the biggest thing that I learned as a sniper instructor, and um, I'll even say just a marksmanship instructor in general, is everybody has a different way to learn. And mm -hmm. you as the instructor, it's not incumbent on the student to change to the way you teach. It's incumbent on you to change the way you teach to reach that person. And that's I where I think a, a lot of people fail. A lot of instructors yeah. aren't that way. Exactly. A lot and of that's, instructors a, are, that's where I, I think a lot of them fail. Yeah. Especially the military instructors, because some things can be so you know, rigid mm -hmm. or sing-songing and how they teach it. This is how we teach it. I'm like, well, okay. Yeah. Right. And I think that actually adds to some of the uh, failures in the military people failing out of schools because this is the way we're teaching. And if you don't get it, then it's, it's your fault. You know, we're moving on without you and that's too bad. So, right. That's what I mean by the, sometimes more of a test than a school, you know? Exactly. Yeah. It's not really about teaching or learning. It's a big test. Like you said. Yeah. Uh, so you answered my question then. Um, I was going to ask you about how how easy was the decision process to get out for you then? Pretty simple with the fact that you were already starting to feel the effects of the military? Oh, for sure. It was. And not that I didn't enjoy it. I did. I just, it was a clear decision. It wasn't hard at all. Um, I don't know if the Marines have reenlistment NCOs. Do you guys we have, have, um, like the, we have what NCO we call. You got to go talk to before you get out so they can try and talk you into reenlisting. They're actually called career recruiters. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. So they try to get you to stay in. Yes. Well, I, I jokingly called myself the ETS NCO that before you re, before you reenlisted, you had to come talk to me so I could talk you out of it. It was like a joke for a couple of weeks. That's funny. And I had a couple of buddies be like, why, why do you hate the military so much? And I'd say, I don't hate the military. I loved it. It was amazing for me. Just do me a favor and think about this. If it was such a great thing for you, like the recruiters telling you, why would you have to sign up for four years at a time? Why would they be begging you to stay? If it was such a great thing, they would be exclusive. They'd say, you know, we're not quite sure we want you, Ryan. Why don't you prove to us that you should be able to stay if it was such a good deal? And why are they offering you money for it? You should be paying them if it's such a great deal. And I said, <laughs> and are you going to stay in for a career? And they said, well, maybe. I said, all right. And I'd pull out the you know, pay schedule. And I'd say, here, you've got, at that time with the GI Bill, with the Post-911 just kind of starting up and everything, it was something like 80 grand for college. Wow. When you put it all together, I'm like, guys, yeah. go to school, come back after school, take a four-year break, let Iraq do its thing, come back after four years and look at the money you're going to be making for retirement. So, no, I, I have no problem with the military at all. I loved it. I just knew uh, it, was, it was, I got out of it what I needed out of it. And um, if my heart wasn't in it, then I don't think they would have wanted me there either. You know, they said they wanted me there, but if my heart really wasn't there, and they were offering me my E6 to re-enlist. And that actually was one of the reasons that helped me know it was the wrong answer. They said, well, here's your E6, mm. you know, here's your E6 pin. You re-enlist, we'll promote you right now. I'm like, if, if I'm going to be E6 after four and a half years, that means you want me to stay in for another 16 and get promoted like two more times, <laughs> three more <laughs> right. times. That's actually, that's actually an argument of why I need to leave. Thank you. I'm out. <laughs> and I almost went back in. So after law school, I considered going back in as JAG. I thought that might be neat to do. That wouldn't be a bad no. choice no it wouldn't be bad at all um and if anything too you know how the military works most of these jag um 
officers would, wouldn't know how to tie their boots when they joined the military, right? They wouldn't know how to put on the uniform. Right, exactly. And so you know how classes and promotions and job assignments work. If I'm the only one there with a combat ranger scroll on my shoulder and jump wings <laughs> and all this stuff, I'm going to stand out. I was like, oh, I'll go back as Jag. That'll be an easy career. And my wife at the time said, no, I married somebody who wasn't in the military. I'd like to keep it that way. And my answer was, fair enough. No problem. Okay. I, well, that's actually why I got out. Um, for me, the, the cutoff was going to be 10. If I reached 10, I was in because there's no reason to throw yeah. 50%. I did reach nine and a half, but Clinton was the president and the drawback was crazy. I was having mm -hmm. to go through sensitivity training. There was just the deployment time. It was funny. I came from a Marine reconnaissance unit up to Quantico and one of the guys who was an instructor went to the same when he left, right after I got there, he went to the same Marine Reconnaissance unit I left. Ran into him a couple years later, and he, or about a year later, mm -hmm. the deployment time in those units was 10 months out of the year because there was such a drawdown and there were so few units yeah. now. They were constantly being deployed. And I was like, that is not, you know, the wife wanted to have kids. Yeah. I'm like, you can't have well, a and family. You did some amazing things. I mean, if you came from a yeah. recon unit and you were an instructor, that's, that's an amazing experience and amazing background for it. That's kind of what I did. Like, well, what else am I going to get out of this? Another 10 yeah. years? What other boxes am I going to check off this list? Yeah. I mean, when I was in Okinawa doing that, I actually ran in, I actually took a class from a, um, an army special forces sergeant major. And it was all about man tracking. And he had run missions into Laos in Vietnam doing man tracking. So it got to do all that, got to go on a three-day. They took 1-1 uh, one, one is in, um, oh, shoot, why can't I think of it? It's there on Okinawa. I can't think of their little base. But they set up a trail through the jungles of Okinawa, and we tracked them for three days and mm -hmm. did a bunch of stuff. So I got to do that. I went to Long Range Surveillance Leaders Course. I went to pathfinder i went to jump i did all that so i did a lot That's of cool yeah i did a lot of fun stuff in the marine corps but man i am paying for it today <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it I is it. kicking my butt so i know exactly how you feel and when you said you were already feeling it at 23 i'm like well you had two things going against you you're 6'2 and 220 so everybody thinks your pack is bigger and you can carry more and i did well and as part of a sniper section on the deployments the RTO, right, is the guy that carries the big radio on the platoon. Mm -hmm. Well, when there's two of you, one of us is the RTO. And when you're going out for four or five days, that's a lot of batteries for that radio. And then the way we worked things, we had a giant digital camera with this huge 110-millimeter lens to take pictures far away and a Panasonic Toughbook and satellite antennas to be sending all this data back. Oh, and by the way, I was the medic, right? So I was also the medic. So I'd carry you know, IV bags, the medical supplies. You know, so when you, when you look at the platoon and realize that all the jobs are in two people, who's the RTO, who's the medic, who's the PL, who's the this, who's the, you kind of put it all together. Um, you have ridiculously heavy packs. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The loadout's crazy. Mm -hmm. I totally I, get it. I would, I would jump at 400 pounds. Wow. Yeah, so, I, I, so I've tipped just up to 400 pounds before on the jump, on the scale before you jump, so it's all just everything. And how much of that was the shoot and the I don't backup know. shoot? I mean, I, carrying 100 pounds here is not that big a deal, so 100 plus me 
320, you know, 80 with other stuff. You know, so just right. it, it wears on you. It's definitely a young oh, man's yeah. game. Definitely a young oh, man's yeah. game. There's something about being, you know, 22 and thinking you can break through a brick wall and then getting to 42 and realizing, why would you do that? That's I'd rather stay home. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm sure you've heard of Camp Dawson. Uh-huh. Um, I've been up there. I got drug across a an LZ because a smaller guy was being drug across the LZ and I couldn't get away from his parachute, got caught up in that. <laughs> so I landed literally without being able to do a, a PLF, like at a 60 mm-hmm. degree angle. Yeah. You take a, you take a beating in the military. Yeah. So like right now so, I'm looking out my window and we have a snowstorm here and I can't see 200 yards, maybe not even 150 yards because the snow and the storm is so thick. Young Ranger me would look at that and say, Ooh, that looks that looks miserable. Let's get out in that and, and have some fun. <laughs> right. And older me says, that looks miserable. I'd rather sit here in the warm house and talk to Dave. <laughs> exactly. And even then as a civilian, you can dress way warmer and much more comfortable than you could in the military. So, yeah. so now when you were in, I, I, like I said earlier, when we were talking off the air, um, I listened to your other podcast mm-hmm. and you're going ballistic and it was very intriguing to me that I guess as an undergrad student at Arizona state, you were teaching other students like land navigation and other things. Yes, but not at Arizona state. So I taught at a community college. And so I also went to a community college. So the first couple of years of my undergrad, I went to community college, which I recommend everyone to do. I mean, first off, I don't recommend that necessarily anyone go to college. I I think it's one of those (laughs) things that, well, I was beat, it was beat into me by my parents. We never got to go. You have to go. I'm not mad they did that, but it was just my parents believed college was the only ticket to success. You better go. And now I'm the de facto friend among my peers that gets to talk to their kids. Oh, Ryan, talk to Susie about why it's important to go to college. Because you, you, by the time you're a lawyer, you've had a bunch of school. And so people think, well, you're the guy that's going to you know, talk. And I'll look over and say, oh, Susie, you think about going to college? No. Okay, don't go then. And the parents drop their jaw like, no, you're supposed to talk her into it. I'm like, no, <laughs> college is great if you need it. It's the worst investment ever if you don't need it. You want to be a lawyer? You better go to college. You want to be a small business owner and you want to be a plumber? You're going to make just as much as the lawyer if you just don't go to college and go start your business now. And by the time you're my age, you're going to own five plumbing trucks and a small business out there and doing great. So anyway, right. I'm not super big into that. But if you do go to college... I think it's crazy to waste money the first two years on a university. Go to community college. Smaller classes, more attention from the instructors, way cheaper. Anyway, so I did that. And while I was there, I was teaching outdoor classes. I was teaching rock climbing. I, I jokingly called it Ranger 101, right? So it was rock climbing, <laughs> land navigation, survival, backpacking. I taught all those classes. And the more I taught, the more they'd let me add to the course calendar. And so each semester, I just add some more courses and... I would teach, you know, three to five rock climbing classes a semester between, I even made up my own curriculum of, you know, this, this is what we're going to cover in the beginning class. The intermediate class is going to do this. The advanced class, we're going to go outside. And it was a lot of fun. Yeah. sounds like it. It was fun to park in faculty parking too, to walk into class. (laughs) A lot closer, I'm sure. Yeah. Or walk into the faculty lounge or use the faculty printers. It would just drive other professors. So they were so angry. They'd see a student walking in only imagine that's no different than a student being a student at a military school and going into the military the yeah. instructor offices like, that's what are you doing in funny here? yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I can honestly say that I did that. I went to a military school for four years. So, um, you know, my, my rat year when I came in and, you know, I went into an officer's lounge and they all looked at me and I just went and did my thing and walked out and I was like, oh, I know I'm going to catch it now, you know, and next thing you know, nobody said anything. And I'm like, okay, keep going. <laughs> Don't look back. <laughs> so that's the key to life. Sometimes just act like you're supposed to be there. Exactly. And most people won't say a word. So how was that, how was that received by the, um, college students when you were doing that? The courses? Yeah, it was great. Well, I ended up, so I'm a big believer in the fake it till you make it kind of thing, or just go try it. I'm also a believer in failing fast. So I'm not, I'm not one of those people that ever says don't give up or don't quit. I'm one of the people that says absolutely quit. If it's the wrong thing for you or the wrong method or the wrong path, quit and quit now. So you can go figure out the right path, right? The analogy I, it's not the best, but I like to give it is if we were sitting here at my house, I'd say, Hey Dave, will you go out and try and push with your bare hands, my entire house, one foot to the North? Try it. I hope you give up because if you right. do the never quit, never give up, you're going to die out there. The rest of your life you're going to spend trying to push a house. It's not going to work. I'd like you to try, realize it's not a smart move and give up. So I'm not trying to be a, someone that says give up and quit in life, but if I am going to fail, I want to fail quickly. And so I just go for something and for teaching, I was at the rock gym just because I enjoyed rock climbing and I saw these college students coming in. I noticed that some of them were cute and asked the owner of the gym, why, why are these college students coming in like on a Tuesday night? They just kind of climb and then they leave and they sign in what's going on. And he said, oh yeah, there's a rock climbing class at the community college and they teach here. I said, well, where's the instructor? And he said, oh, he shows up on day one of the semester to drop off the list and pick, shows up at the end of the semester to pick up the attendance list and he gets paid for being a teacher of this course. And the owner of the gym said, you know, Ryan, if you wouldn't mind, would, would you? I'll pay you if you want. Would you mind teaching them? So sure, no problem. So I started teaching them every Tuesday night. I would teach them fundamentals and get them going to the next level. And after about a month of this, I went to the department chair at the college and said, hi, I'd like to introduce myself. I'm the guy that's teaching your rock climbing class, you know, that's in the physical education oh, department. Wow. And I want to keep teaching it. You know, what can I do? And she said, well, normally professors need at least a master's degree, usually like a PhD to be a professor. I said, well, I'm glad you said that because your rules also say or five years experience in the field. I've got five years experience in the field. Why don't you hire me? She said, okay. And so I put together a lesson plan and started teaching and I just grew it and grew it. I think the students really liked it because it was a credit earning class where they got to learn actually how to make anchors and how to, how to do things out there in the real world rock climbing. And the few that made it through to the advanced class every weekend, I'd meet them somewhere new around the Phoenix area. And we were rock climbing you know, on, on the school's dime, the school bought all the equipment. I got them to buy all the equipment and put it all together. And yeah, it was, it was fun. Yeah. Learning life skills. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. I, I, and I asked that because I imagine at some point I feel like, uh, it would fill up. The class would be filling up as word got around and the stuff that was being done. So it'd be a more popular class. It was, it was doing well. I, I think at, at its peak, I had two beginning classes a semester. So two nights of the week were a different class. As you meet one time a week, right? And then one intermediate, one advanced class. So I had four classes I was teaching there. And then that would grow into, like I said, the backpacking classes or the land navigation classes where we'd meet in the portable buildings on the, the campus. 
on night classes and I would teach land navigation for a semester, how to read a map, how to plot points. So I'd have them out there doing their pace count in the soccer field at night. It was, it was really fun. And then we'd go meet around places around town to hike. And I'd say, student number three, I want you to get me to this grid coordinate. Let's go. And the whole class would follow behind them. And we'd get there and we'd talk about good and bad. And eventually those students then wanted to take my backpacking courses, which would be we'd take a whole weekend and we'd go backpack somewhere around, around the southwest. And if they were a prior land nav student, I could say, all right, Tim, this is where we're going tonight. How do you think is the best way to get there? Let's go. So it was, it was, it was, it was a little bit of a racket. I, I couldn't believe I got paid for that stuff. <laughs> yeah, nothing wrong with that at all. Mm-hmm. So, so you graduated um, Arizona State with a Bachelor of Science. Now, what did you actually get your degree in there? Oh, I'm not happy about it. I got, I got it in political science, which I did not want. Oh, um, okay. So I was a physics major until the last semester. So I took, and I was a pre, I did all my pre-med requirements. So I took or the organic chemistries. I took all the anatomy and physiologies, the cellular biology, and all the pre-medical requirements I took until I realized I was dating a doctor at the time and her life was miserable. Mm. And I was a little bit older than the rest of the college students because I had the military first. And... I don't think it was an ego. I think it was more, I've already proven myself through a crucible and, and know what I can do. I don't think I need to go do medical school and then four years of residency and then have all those mountains of debt and then start at the bottom and work my way up again. That doesn't feel good. Life's short. Yeah. And so I ended up transferring to ASU's West Campus for the last semester and I walked around day one of the last semester trying to find my classrooms. And I couldn't. <laughs> and I went to the main registrar and I, on the top of my sheet said West Campus student couldn't find them and I went to the front office the first day panicked because I'm late to my classes and she's like oh sweetheart those classes are only on the main campus because I'd already taken I forget how many calcs there were like three or four calculuses then qualitative analysis after that I've already taken those I'd already taken all the you know basic physics classes and so I was all on the advanced stuff you know thermodynamics too they're like we don't offer that here that's only the main campus I'm like well I'm not going back to the main campus this is my last semester. I want out. I'm ready to go. And she looked at my transcript. She said, well, you could still get a BS degree in political science if you go take these two political science classes. I only had to take two classes. To oh, wow. I said, all right, done. So I went and I took two <laughs> political science classes and everything else kind of like waved over. And I said, I refuse to get a BA. Nothing against someone that gets a BA, but I took way too much science to not get a BS. Right. So I got that and then got out and thought, well, what next? What do I want to do now? And just like the military on a whim, I went to law school. It's kind of my next challenge in life, and here I am. Wow. So when you were uh, – at what point did you get hooked up with the National Shooting Sports Foundation? So your first summer of law school. So you have to sign a piece of paper that agrees you won't work during your first year of law school because you have to focus on law school too much. But your first summer, you're supposed to get an internship, and there's a lot of pressure on this internship, on it being it's so crucial you get the right internship because that's what can set you up. And it's true. I'm a strong believer that your first job, your resume or your transcripts from school matter. From then on out, it's who you know and your, how good you were at it. Right? The first job, they, they ask you to see your, maybe your GPA or where you went to school. By the time you're on the second job in that field, it's because you knew somebody or they knew you were good enough and they're bringing you away and that stuff doesn't matter. So the first, this first internship was so big because you know from there you'd make your contacts and connections and go on. And the National Shooting Sports Foundation is there in Connecticut. And I heard about it from mm-hmm. somebody else who was trying to get the opportunity and they couldn't do it. So I reached out 
they gave me the internship and they paid me, which is rare for an internship. And by the end of the summer, they said, we'd like you to stay. Would you take a job? And I was the manager of the federal government relations for the firearms industry uh, for a few years. That was fun. And then I left there and went to Remington. Right. Now, when you, is that when you did all your videos then while you were a law student? Yep. So the first round of videos where I'm just in a studio in the early, like, what is the men of the angle? Things like that. Yeah, that was right, actually with the whiteboard. Yeah, that was actually uh, Dave Miles, who is still a great friend, wasn't used to work for the NSSF and he was in charge of videos and they had their own video studio there. And he walked up to me one day and said, hey, you know, long range stuff, right? I said, yeah, I do. Said, Would you like to teach? Sure. So I walked downstairs. He said, here, put on this NSSF shirt. So I put on this giant baggy NSSF shirt and said, can you do this? I said, sure. Let's put a whiteboard here. Let's give me like a cooking cam, like a video camera above me to show the whiteboard and let's mm -hmm. roll. We just rattled off and did those videos. Yeah. Okay. They weren't bad. They were pretty good. I like them. More views than I ever expected. So that's good. So then I noticed that basically the same year you graduated with your law degree, you started at Remington. No, actually, because I went to part-time law school once I started working full-time at the NSSF. So I switched to part-time law school. Mm. So I was in my last year of law school when I actually quit the NSSF on a Monday and said, I got to focus on school because the better future for me is after law school. And the longer I stay here, the longer law school is taking. I need to focus, get law school and the bar done. So I quit. And that Friday, Remington came and hired me. And I even told him, no, thanks. I'm not looking for a job. And CEO <laughs> made me an offer I couldn't refuse. And so called my wife and said, guess what? I got a job when we were both excited that I quit earlier. And I was still a law student when I started at, at Remington and then graduated while I was there and spent oh, three wow. or four years of a whirlwind of travel and um, just awesome opportunity at Remington. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I mean, by, so I was, I guess, 30 when I was maybe at Remington and still in law school. And ended up being a vice president of Remington Outdoor Company at a I young age. Super yeah. stressful, though. Super stressful. I was miserable. Ended oh, wow. Just, oh, we had 23 locations. So I traveled nonstop. I averaged four flights a week. I mean. Oh, Lord. I had two little kids. I was like, forget this noise. I got I to stop this. You know, and even then, with 23 locations, I'd only see each location twice a year. So they'd only see me every six months and be like, where are you, Ryan? Where have you been? Uh, well, 22 other, other locations yeah those other 22 <laughs> places and just the stress of dealing with everything and you know Remington Outdoor Company at the time was huge we had a lot of brands and a lot of companies and a lot of everything so um, but it was a great experience for me and great people and left that and went to go be a lawyer on my own and um, they were Remington paid me to sit on the sidelines as you know like a, as an agreement to sit that was part of my agreement to get in was the executive deal so um, I got paid to sit there at home and not compete. So I thought, uh, this is okay. the time to write a book. If I'm ever going to write one, this is the time to write one. So that's when I wrote my first book, the, the Long Range Shooting Handbook. And uh, no publishers would take it. They either ignored me or turned me down. And I said, screw you guys. I'm a lawyer. I can make my own company. So I made my own publishing company and made the unilateral decision to publish my book first. So. Wow. Went, went well, and, your, yeah. and your degree is technically in what? Uh, tax and corporate law? Yeah, it's, it's a law degree, but yeah, because you don't get a... You can't or specialty, a, I mean... Yeah, you can't yeah. really have a specialty, but yeah, I did take the tax corporate program, yeah, for sure. Okay. Just because that was the more real. I knew I didn't want to get into criminal law because I didn't want to be a prosecutor and not get paid. 
and I didn't want to be a criminal lawyer and have to always watch my back or have problems. I didn't want to do family law because that's a nightmare. So I just kind of right. threw down the list and thought, I, I like business and corporate stuff, so I'll do the business route for legal stuff. And that's that's the stuff I do now is business compliance and really, really boring sounding stuff. But <laughs> when when people need me, they need me. So it's kind of fun right. to be useful. Yeah. Until next time. Don't be a little bitch. Yeah.